Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Hey everybody, welcome back to Space Junk. Time for another podcast talking about all things amateur astronomy. We are we've got our heads in the clouds here all the time every week. So this time we are actually we hope we have our heads above the clouds because we want to see the stars, the moon, the planets and all that great stuff that's swirling up over our heads every single night. And this is the podcast where we try to bring that stuff to you, get you motivated to get outside and look up and enjoy the heavens that are always have something interesting for us to look at. And today our our guest is uh, Kevin Lagore. He is a astronomy outreach person who operates Focus Astronomy, and he's also a product specialist at uh, Skywatcher Telescope. So we'll talk a little bit about what he's doing and get his input on the, what are we doing to get other people interested in the night sky? But before we get started, let me introduce my co-host, Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes. You out there, Dustin? Thank you, Tony. Yeah, I'm here. And, um, you know, astronomy outreach is something very near and dear to my heart. And uh, very, very few do it better than Kevin Lagore. So uh, Focus is um, is out there reaching a ton of people. Uh, Kevin is constantly busy with it on, you know, you see it on Facebook and the other social media outlets. And uh, it does a phenomenal job bringing space to the general public. And so super excited about this one. And it's something I think is very important. So Kevin, welcome yeah, to thanks, Space Jump. Thanks guys for yes, uh, having me on here. It's a lot of fun to be a part of this. So Focus Astronomy, tell us a little bit so about what you're doing Focus with that. Focus is kind of my, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better, it's my project. That's kind of what I do after hours or all hours, I should say. Um, I've been doing amateur astronomy since I was nine years old. And I've worked with a group out in Arizona where I'm basically from for many, many years, but uh, I always had kind of my own thought on how I wanted to approach it. I like working with a lot of the technical things out there, and now that I work in the telescope industry with Skywatcher, I have access to a lot of the latest and greatest technology, uh, thanks to a lot of friends um, in the industry. So I want to be able to bring that to the people and give back in ways that people have given back to me and inspired me. So I would like to then share that and keep that philosophy going for others. So how do you do that? Do you like set up telescopes somewhere and, and start talking to people or what? Tell us how you specifically how you go out and reach these people. I have a pretty wide uh, a net, I guess I could say, for throwing um, out there. Uh, I do a number of different things. So number one, uh, I like to work, um, of course, with uh, just going out and sharing views through a telescope, just kind of a, you know, grassroots, bare bones way of doing it. I try to find events where people are, uh, rather than trying to fabricate my own at some far off place, I try to bring it, bring it to people. So uh, out in Phoenix, uh, Arizona, we've got uh, First Fridays, which is a big art walk that takes place, of course, every first Friday of the month. And I'll check if there's a, a moon or a bright planet or something out there. And if there is, we'll we'll go out there. Uh, for the night. And of course, it's a, a horrendous location by astronomy standards, but to just be able to show people the moon 
for a planet is pretty phenomenal. And we'll go through about 2,000 to 3,000 people a night um, out there. So uh, I also will help other uh, programs. I have a lot of friends around the Valley in Phoenix who have their own groups. And if they're doing something, I'll go out there and just provide assistance for their for their group as well. I do, of course, as Dustin has brought up before, I do have astrophotography. I'm trying to uh, throw uh, imaging into the loop there just to kind of expand that because everyone wants to take pictures nowadays and we have social media and I feel like imaging is probably the best way to attack it on social media. I can take pictures of whatever object I find interesting and I can do a write-up on that and then encourage someone to be like, yeah, you can go see this with your own telescope. It's super simple. And then, of course, the last thing I do, which I guess is kind of unique for my program, is uh, meteorites. Um, I like using meteorites in outreach because it really kind of brings the sense of touch um, into exploring the universe. So I have two custom-made cases uh, with about 25 meteorite samples each. They're all lit um, LEDs. Um, I've had them looked over by professionals to make sure everything is, you know, to the T and how it should be because I like everything to be accurate. Um, but I'll bring those to schools and public events as well with the telescopes as a complement to the telescopes. So that's kind of how I do things is I try to figure out whatever makes astronomy interesting and try to hit it through that channel. That's one thing I love about, uh, I mean, you touched on a lot of things there. And I, I'd like to to really pick those apart and go into them because there's, there's so much more to it uh, that I've seen with what you're doing um, that I feel like is incredibly important. But the philosophy in general, the idea that you're going to give up the skies. You're not going to go to the darkest skies in the world, but you're going to go where people are. You know, I actually, I actually caught a lot of flack for that. You know, I started taking scopes to breweries and other places where people were, and uh, I saw it pop up on the forums. You know, people were kind of making fun of it, saying like, "Hey, expensive telescopes and people drinking. What could possibly go wrong?" But uh, you know, which is funny. It, it really is. But uh, I, I like the idea and I like your approach that, um, you know, don't ask people to meet you out in the middle of nowhere, something they're not used to, to explore a hobby they're not used to without knowing really what they're getting into. Instead, bring it to them wherever they are, because things like like the moon, just seeing the moon through a telescope, that's extremely powerful. And it's an image that once people see it, it uh, it it has the ability, right? Just just that that. Uh, that single experience, a few seconds looking through a telescope at something like the moon or Jupiter or any of these bright targets um, to really hook somebody in astronomy. And you don't have to be in the darkest skies in the world to do that. Yeah, that's 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 right. I mean, there's uh, you have this. And of course, being being an amateur astronomer myself, it's like I get it. I, I love going to a dark sky, you know, Milky Way, millions of stars. But, you know, let's be real here. You know, we have people who've never looked up and it's like, okay, hey, I want you to go down this weird windy road in the desert out to this patch. It's like, I've seen that horror movie before and see how that enters. <laughs> so it's just... Right. You, yeah, it's a cool, bit creepy. You, know, you gotta be <laughs> real is. about people's expectations. And, you know, of course if they come out and they're like, wow, I'm totally stoked on this and want to be a part of it, then then you can have the conversation about, hey, well, we're going to do this come meet us out here and blah, blah, blah. But you can't just uh, get people out there. And I guess the only place that you can do it that makes that unique is like the national parks because you have people that want to be there. But and they do a great job at doing that. But that's a very special 
circumstance at that point. Yeah, guys, think about from the outside looking in at astronomers. We have to be the creepiest people on the planet. You know, asking people we don't know, it's like, oh, we got this spot that's really dark and no one's there. And uh, we go on. Yeah, let's go out there all night. Like, that's horrible. Yeah, that no, is, this isn't a gun. It's just a telescope, yeah. man. It's all right. <laughs> that is horrible. But uh, I've, I've talked to friends about that where it's like, there's really nothing logical when you break down our hobby. It's like, we're going to drive out in the middle of the desert, stay up all night and stare up at the sky. It's like, yeah, you know, there's no cults that I've ever done that before either. So, it's just, it's, so you got to, you have to bring it down to a level that is captivating for people to want to be a part of it and and then if they really feel that they've got the roots in there then then explore further down the road but don't just hit it right right into it zero to 60 and scare them off yeah it could be a lot of awkward moments i I think the strangest thing i ever did was when i was still working at the space telescope science institute we did we went to south by southwest one year with the james webb space telescope full-scale model and someone had this idea to go to the college bars and have a sidewalk astronomy night where astronomers would actually go and just start talking astronomy in a bar. And I thought, oh, God, this is going to be so weird. And so we went, and it was weird at first because you had to kind of engage people in a conversation about astronomy. But once you started, it really took on a life of its own. And people... Are, and there was no telescopes, nothing like that. It was just people talking astronomy. And that really captured a lot of people's, um, you know, once, they, once they, they would overhear you, they would listen, and then they would suddenly you'd have a circle around you and you're talking about astronomy. I don't know of any other, very many other science topics where that happens. I mean, biology is great, but you're not going to get a biologist with a circle around them talking about I don't know, mitochondria or something, but when you're talking about black holes and, and galaxy rotations and, and things like that, people people want to know this stuff. So that was the weirdest thing I ever did. But uh, Dustin, I got to hand it to you, man. I don't I don't know that I have the guts to take a telescope out in some of these bars and, and do that. That would be <laughs> uh, you get you get some scary moments, but you know, all in all, I think it's a it's a really good thing. And when it's that easy for someone to just step outside, um, look through the scope, and go right back in to, to meet with their friends, um, you know, it's it's exactly what Kevin's bringing up. Is if you bring it to people and you make it accessible in that way, you're a lot more likely to get people interested. And I think that you know. Innately, like everybody has this interest. Nobody looks up at the night sky and just says, yeah, that's boring. I don't want to see that, you know? And if that's the case, then making it accessible is really all it takes. And so, yeah, I mean, there's the potential that somebody's going to tackle my telescope, but it's never happened. And and what has happened is you've, uh, you know, you get some funny things that come through and it, it forms friendships and groups that then want to do more of it. You know, for instance, we had, we were at, uh, we were at a local, um, brewery here called Wavelength. And, um, there was a guy there that he'd, he'd been drinking for a while. And, um, <laughs> he came out and he was, he looked at Jupiter and when he would look in there, he just kept, he would pull his eye away and he looked and he was, he was real amazed by what he was seeing, but he kept saying, oh man, it's weird. There's like, there's two of them in there. And I was like, I was like, I bet there are, 
you know, you love where my focus so much. <laughs> yeah. Even, really. yeah. yeah. You've been here a while. I bet there are. And uh, he's like, no, seriously, man, there's two of them. And so after probably five minutes of this, I looked in there and it had gotten foggy, uh, you know, over the mirror and the, the eyepiece. And, um, there really were, so it was a reflection, like a ghost reflection. And there really were two of them. It wasn't just the alcohol telling him there was, you know, but uh, you get these funny little moments and then everybody there's laughing, having a good time. And you've got people, talking about astronomy instead of the things that typically are the conversations in a bar or you know in a restaurant or whatever it is and i think that's really important yeah you guys uh what you guys brought up brings up a kind of a extension of where we're going with it um everyone out there seems to have some inherent interest in astronomy i mean you look back culturally for you know humans our whole existence really has kind of been based upon our intimacy with the night sky. You know, when we didn't have all this technology to entertain ourselves, we would look up and make constellations and folklore. And then we would look up and figure out what stars would rise at what season and know when to plant and when to, you know, pull the crops. And so that interest has always been rooted in, I think, people. And I think the big thing with outreach is being able to tap that uh, emotion and bring that back up again. And even if you're only there for, you know, five minutes, everyone generally, if they look at the moon, it's like, whoa. And you stop to think about the grand picture of things rather than, you know, what the Kardashians are up to. Um, and just, you know, take a second and being able to tap that interest, I think is what outreach is all about. Yeah, it's one thing to show somebody Saturn through a telescope or the point out the Big Dipper uh, using a laser pointer, and they, they'll get it and they'll go, oh, yeah, that's cool. But I find that it's really great if you can take the extra step and provide them with some perspective, you know, that when you say that, you know, you what, what you're looking at are, are stars that are within our own galaxy some dozens of light years away, and, you know, the light has traveled, you know, all these years to get to us and these little feeble photons are falling on your retina only just now. These kinds of contexts, I think people are really hungry for because you can teach them about facts and what stars are and what planets are and how many there are and why is Pluto not a planet anymore. That seems to be an obsession with everybody. And so you, but if you can go a little bit further and just say, well, here's what it kind of means to us. When you look up there in the sky, do you know that there are over 1.5 planets for every star up there on average. There are more planets up over our head right now than there are stars. And that's a new finding. That's a brand new thing. And people just love that uh, to get that perspective on, on what it means to them in their lives. So I don't know. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a lot of fun to do, but uh, I don't know if I, I'm actually a pretty private person. I don't, I'm not a big extrovert and it sounds like the two of you guys are, you don't seem to have a problem getting out there and, in front of people and getting a crowd. No, I think that it's, um, I, I mean, yeah, it, it, it definitely needs to happen. And so Kevin, you do a lot more of this than I do. Um, I feel like every time I look at Facebook, you're leaving another event. I, I don't know how you have time to do anything else. You're always at these things. I'm not sure how my wife puts up with it quite <laughs> honestly, but, um, I see about 30,000 people a year doing this. Um, wow. so and what venue, what's the context like? Is it a, it, these, you say you go where people are, are they like, they're not necessarily astronomy themed, are no, they? No, so I, I work with another group out in Arizona, they're called Stargazing for Everyone, and they, uh, 
they work with the county parks um, that we have around the Phoenix area. So they, they kind of set everything up, but that's the group I worked with before moving out to LA. Now that I'm back in Phoenix, I, I still go out and I support them and I bring out my own scope and the meteorites and stuff and kind of just work as an extension with them. Um, but then I also have my own programs that I work with. Um, but we just try to make it, you know, really friendly, really open to people. How about going to schools? Have you thought about doing that? Yeah, I, I go to schools uh, quite a bit. Uh, I like to work with middle school on up uh, just because I like talking about the more complex things that are going on. And when you're talking about meteorites and stuff like that, I feel like it does take a, a little bit of a level to have a, an understanding of what's going on there as well. Uh, elementary school kids are awesome to work with as well. But personally, I like working with middle school to high school and college. And then, of course, the public uh, with that. And then you know, I, I try to go wherever I can. My biggest event that I go to is the Tucson Festival of Books, which takes place at uh, University of Arizona in uh, March. And there's 120,000 people there in two days. Wow. So uh, we I work with uh, Mount Lemon Sky Center down there who I'm friends with and we'll bring telescopes. I'll put like a big refractor on Venus. And then we'll have some looking at the sun and the meteorites are out there and just really doing anything we can to drive it home and make astronomy hands on and for you to explore. So what kind of equipment do you use to do all this? I mean, that's, that's a lot of use. And yeah. So I've got, you know, as I'm sure Dustin is well aware of when you work in the industry, you kind of get access to a bunch of stuff. Uh, so working with Skywatcher, you know, I've got several of our refractors, um, our larger six-inch APO refractors. I'll bring out, uh, have a couple of uh, paramounts from Software Bisque that go out. And then on the large end, uh, I've got a seven-inch refractor that gets used quite a bit. And uh, currently, I'm working on a, a Dob. I'm quite a fan of Dobsonians. I have a new project that should be finished by summer of next year. It's called the Large Aperture Outreach Telescope, or LAOT. And that is going to be a 28-inch F3.3 Dobsonian, uh, which is specifically designed to be portable for outreach purposes. So I've always been kind of under the uh, go big or go home kind of mentality when it comes to outreach, because I have had people who have taken the time and shared with me some awesome stuff. And, you know, you don't need high-end equipment to do this at all. I tell people that all the time, but I really want to bring it home that where you, when you leave an event I'm at, it's, wow, that was really awesome. And it's going to stick with you for a while. And then we hope to see you again. Like we definitely want you to come back out. And that's the whole, whole drive of it. Well, if you got a 28 inch scope, you're going to be bringing out. I don't think you'll have any problem at all doing Absolutely that. Not. <laughs> <laughs> if they don't, if they don't. Yeah. If you don't like the views for the, through the 28, this just isn't yeah, for you. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> I know You're it's, not it's gonna way find overkill. It. Uh, the 28 has been something I've wanted to do for a long time, and I've worked been working with um, some nonprofits that have helped make this happen. The scope has been crowdfunded. Uh, optics have been donated time. Uh, it's, it's, it's a scope that by the end of the day would not be something that I could personally afford, but I have the drive and the will to want to do it. So I've had people who have been gracious to support that project, and now it's a reality so uh, by summer of uh, 2019, uh, we're hoping the first big event for it will be the Grand Canyon Star Party next June, um, which will be a perfect place to really let that 28 run loose. So. All right. Well, are either one of you guys very much involved in 
some of the citizen science initiatives that are out there now. We have we have uh, we have websites like Zooniverse and and uh, CosmoQuest and all of these people that are bringing science to professional science to amateurs and just ordinary people. Are you guys involved with that at all? Um, I'm not personally at the moment. Uh, I'm always open, obviously, to new outlets. And I know with the, the addition of astrophotography that I've been working on, I'm sure some of that becomes more viable. But uh, it's not something that I've tapped into much yet. Yeah, that was actually a question that uh, I was interested in with you also, uh, Kevin, is because I know, I mean, you've transitioned fairly recently, right? Well, I don't even know that transition is the right word because you're still doing a lot of visual astronomy, but you've also started to tackle astrophotography and very, very quickly become very good at it. It's one of those things that you do a lot of times when people get into astrophotography, it's like Tony and myself, right? If I'm taking a picture, it's going to be, I'm going to destroy the data and try to make it pretty. I like pretty pictures. Whereas Tony, I think you would probably do the exact opposite and try to find the science that you could from it, right? And so with your stuff, Kevin, I I know that you shoot a lot of just monochrome. I see you post, um, you know, just single like hydrogen data. And so I wondered if you were doing that because you were sharing this for scientific purposes or if you just like that black and white image. That's a little bit of both. Uh, I have a friend of mine who works uh, at Mount Hopkins uh, down in southern Arizona in Tucson. And uh, he does follow up work for Kepler and the test missions by looking at exoplanets and things of that nature. And uh, I've always kind of admired um, how they kind of do things and not to knock any of the astrophotography community, but uh, I guess the pretty picture thing just isn't really for me. I mean, I can Google Orion and it's like, there's about a million shots that are going to be awesome of this thing. But uh, I guess my one thing is that there's a lot of people that kind of overlook a lot of really kind of some cool exotic targets that are either visible in a telescope or with a camera of that nature. So um, when I'm out uh, shooting, I kind of take kind of the professional's uh, approach for the most point where I'm, I'm really looking for actually just glimpsing the object or structure that I can point out. Um, I'm not really after the whole pretty picture thing. And uh, like I said, nothing against it. I'm actually fully equipped to do all of that, but um, I like shooting in hydrogen because it shows a lot of the structures of objects. Um, I'll generally shoot with the green filter in place because that's where the human eye peaks, and it makes it easier to encourage people to go look for something similar to that. And then lately, I've been shooting in infrared to show people that there are different things that can be seen out there. So I, I guess I kind of I like my images to have kind of a I really like the timeless look of black and white, I kind of like as an homage to like the glass plates that were still done. So I like that style, but there, I guess there's also a scientific reason along that line. So it's kind of a mix of both worlds at that point. How do you shoot in infrared? What are you doing that with? Uh, so I, I basically use just standard astronomy equipment. I'm using Starlight Express cameras. Um, I like using the 694 chips because they're super sensitive. Down how, down how far? I start at about 800 nanometers and go from there. Okay, so uh, it's a near-infrared then? Yeah, near-IR. Near, oh, I can't talk today, I'm sorry. Uh, Near-IR. Uh, so it's not 100% infrared, but it's, it's generally past where a lot of amateurs stop shooting um, at that point. So um, I like... 
like recently I just did a shot of Orion and what I'll do is I'll actually shoot same amount of time or I guess better example. Um, I just recently shot a an object up near Cassiopeia called Dwingaloo 1. And uh, it's actually right below the heart and the soul nebula. So it's a very familiar point of sky, but it's along this particular edge of the galaxy that is blocked by all the, the arm and the dust um, out there. And there's a lot of, there's a term for it. I, I lost a name for it at the moment. Uh, oh, zone of avoidance is what it's called because we can't really see anything beyond it. So I, I did a same exposure. I did a, an hour's exposure in visual light. And then I shot that same area the next night with the infrared and Dwingaloo one is a galaxy that actually sits behind the dust and it's invisible visually. But when you use the infrared and you blink back and forth between the shots, you can actually start to see this face on barred spiral come out from behind the dust. And it just, it shows people that there's a lot more out there than the simple, you know, red, green, blue, H alpha O3 S2, you know, that's all well and good and they have their place, but, there's there's a lot of exotic things out there and don't be afraid to dive off the deep end and see what's out there you should push it right i mean if you've got the tools push it find something new and and really try to uh push the equipment as far as you can to find whatever it is that you can exactly there's you know there's a hundred billion stars in our galaxy so there's a hundred billion reasons you should never tell me that you're bored um (laughs) and it's the same thing with astrophotography and it's it's kind of this, um, and working in the professional world, and I'm not, I don't want to knock anybody about this or anything, but you kind of get in this, I don't want to say it's a rut, but it's, you can almost tell what season it is by what images are being shown. It's like, okay, M31, it must be fall. Oh, M42, it must be wintertime. Oh, Leo triplet, it must be the spring. It just kind of goes around and around. And there are those highlight objects that everyone should shoot, I think, at some point. But I feel like there's a lot of things that people, they get stuck on kind of the highlight targets, but they never really, you know, fall off into the the dark world that's out there. And dark nebulas are fascinating to shoot. Um, reflection nebulas, infrared targets, um, globulars and Andromeda. You know, there's there's millions of things that could keep you busy, but you know, that's why it's funny where you find a lot of people are like, I'm really kind of bored with this. There's nothing else to shoot. It's like, I don't know what you're looking at, yeah. but there's a whole nother catalog to go off of at this point. <laughs> I really enjoy actually doing that. Like I like to tackle a lot of the, um, the same targets that I am seeing just mm-hmm. in a new way. You know, like I just did the helix. Everybody's going to post the helix. It, you know, it looks like a, a huge eyeball in the sky. And it's just, it's one of those targets that when you see it, you never forget it. What do people ca- call it? The eye yeah. of Sauron. That's what it looks like. Um, you know, so it's one that everybody's seen, but um, I like to just really push the exposure. So like on that one, I think it was like hour long exposures and the total exposure time was like 90 hours. So you get to see all of this new structure and things come out in it. And I think that's what I really enjoy is finding the targets that I've seen before, but finding them in a new way. Definitely. And every, I feel like everyone should, should find what interests them. So just because, you know, I don't take color pictures doesn't mean someone else shouldn't, you know, if that's your interest, you should do it. But if you're going to do it, I feel like you should always strive to be, to do, to push it, to find your niche, to do, you know, find, discover it for yourself. Don't just say, Hey, I went to this talk at this show and 
so-and-so told me to do this and that's all I'm going to do. It's like, no, you should learn from that and then find your own rhythm and your own flavor on how you're going to approach that. Um, and that's, I feel it's really interesting to see, even in Dustin does photography like I do, and everyone's kind of got their own flow to it. Some people like the black and white, some people like portraits, some people, but you just, you find your rhythm and what really excites you and go from there. And then on top of that, take that image and then share it with people. Tell them why it's cool. Why did you spend 90 hours of your life shooting this thing? Because obviously it's that cool. So right. you know, don't be afraid to share it. And that's another uh, way you can do outreach with social media is, you know, just because it's cloudy outside or the weather sucks where you are, doesn't mean you can't take these images and then use that as kind of your digital um, outreach efforts. So outreach doesn't stop just because the sun comes up. Yeah, and I want to I want to jump into that if we could, because you're uh, you're one of the few people that are doing it on a, a large scale both ways. You're doing photography, and I, I would say you're doing high end photography. I mean, even you know just the black and white. You say you're you're not taking pretty pictures, but when you talk about bringing out structure, it's what a lot of the pretty picture photographers are trying to achieve. I mean, there's a ton of structure in your images, especially some of the ultra wide field stuff mm -hmm. you've been doing. And so I would say, you know, doing both on the, uh, the upper level, uh, what are you seeing? Are you seeing that people, because you can obviously reach more numbers with photography because it's evergreen content, right? You post it out, people can see it 24 hours a day and they can see it from anywhere in the world. There's no locality attached to it. So you can reach the entire world with a post but you're reaching 30,000 people where they're actually putting their eye up to the telescope. Which one do you think is more impactful? That's kind of an interesting question, um, actually. So I had a, we were at a star party once and a gentleman really put this really kind of uniquely about it. And um, his example was, we've all seen pictures of the Mona Lisa in a book. I mean, you can, you can Google it and see hundreds of different ones. But it, so it's one thing to see a picture of, say, Orion a million times. But it's an, so it'll be another thing for you to actually fly to France, go to the Louvre, and actually see the original Mona Lisa in person. Um, and visually, that's how that works is, yes, there are pictures about it, but there is some uniqueness about you being able to step up to the eyepiece yourself. And for that split that time that you're at that eyepiece, those photons from those targets are almost intended just for you. That is your little section of the universe at that point. And so visual, I think, has its place. Uh, there's kind of a beauty or intimacy that visual brings that I don't feel photography can emulate because you're not in the, you're not in it at the moment. You you can't remember that. When I looked at the eyepiece, there was a chill in the air and the moon was a crescent and you have all these uh, emotions and senses going on to make that that moment really kind of special to you. And the only person when you do photography that experiences that is the photographer who did it. But that that's not to say that photography does not have its place either because again there's a lot of people that I use photography primarily for people who can't get to the eyepiece. You know, there's I've done camps where a lot of these uh, kids are they have some wicked illness that prevents them from being able to step up to the ladders or the eyepiece. And 
the cameras really give them that experience to be able to capture it themselves or we'll let them take control of the telescopes and for them that that's where photography i think comes in um but photography kind of adds a new uh, element with it and especially today in the world of technology everybody wants to share things so i feel photography brings that unique and i i just want to comment on that about the eyepiece and visual observing the connection that you have with those photons i think is the most personal you're ever going to get with the universe. And I think it's something that I recently learned that Al Nagler had probably spent a lot of his life trying to perfect is that connection. Because in our hangout with his son, he would talk about this majesty factor, this wow factor of looking through his eyepieces in a way that you would feel the contrast. You would see the contrast in the eyepiece and those photons are bright and their stars are crisp and they're looking and you're right there and you're connecting directly at that moment with the universe. And I think that is, it can't be replicated in any other way. And so I, to just, just my input on what Dustin was asking, uh, as far as effectiveness, the eyepiece and, and when people have never experienced it before, and they're seeing the Orion Nebula in a way, you know, directly. It's way different than when you've looked at an image taken by someone else. Yeah, definitely. That's the intimacy that I feel like the eyepiece brings at that point. Uh, but again, that's not to say that the photography doesn't have its own place um, at that point. Oh, I, of course not. I feel like they do go hand in hand really quite well, but you have to be... The one thing about photography, of course, is it takes a lot more effort. You know, unfortunately, it's, it can be a bit more expensive to take that approach as well. So, but things are becoming easier for people to to take that effort. So, well, that's the benefit of photography, right? Is that you can reach so many people with it so quickly, and you do you give up exactly what you're talking about, Tony. There's not that connection, that intimacy. It would be hard to emulate, but. I feel like it's the book that you were talking about that everybody has seen the Mona Lisa in. So at the point where they have an opportunity to see the real mm -hmm. thing, they know to appreciate it. Because if it were just hanging in a window somewhere and nobody had seen it or talked about it, I really doubt so many people would stop and, you know, gawk over it, right? But, but because they have seen it, they know to appreciate it. And I think that's what photography does is it, it gives people something to aspire to. And it also tells them, you know, this, like if they see a picture of the moon or the Orion Nebula, and then they have the opportunity, it comes up and they, they hear about an event like yours and you've got it posted that they can come out through your gigantic telescope and see the Orion Nebula. Now that means something. It carries a weight that it wouldn't have otherwise. Exactly. And that, so that's that's kind of where the two come in. So you have the intimacy side of the visual side, and then you come into the uh, long-term and mass effect of the photography. So I, that's why I do both, because the ability to basically use the two simultaneously gives a much larger impact, because I can, I can now make my own flyers or write-ups about things on what we're going to be seeing at this event and, you know, so on and so forth. So being able to merge those two really works quite well. What do you find that people like seeing the most? What's the one thing that uh, you get most excited to show people? Uh, photographically or visually? Visually. Of course, Orion is always 
one of those things, you know, every time you go out, everybody's like, where's Orion? Where's Orion? Middle of June, where's Orion? That's kind of one of the major things. Uh, one of the coolest things, though, is going to like the Grand Canyon Star Party. You get people from all over the world. So you get people from like New Zealand or Australia and they're like, we want to see the North Star. And it doesn't even hit you until they ask. It's like, it's such a common thing that like, why would you ever do that? But they've never seen it before. So it's, it's you know, things like that are kind of really kind of fun. So, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, the, the kind of the brighter objects, I think, are what people really tend to gravitate to or just just seeing the North Star, having it pointed out or seeing the Big Dipper and where it is. And for a lot of people, they just like the, the connect the dots where you take a laser and it's like, wow, it, it's a real thing. It's like, well, yeah, it's been folklore for, for centuries. So there it is. And it, it kind of makes that connection where they'd always heard about it. But the fact that it's right there kind of it brings it home at that point. Right. Yeah. Every, uh, every imager in the Northern hemisphere absolutely has a love affair with the North star, um, for allowing us to, to align our equatorial mounts and everybody South of the equator, um, is, you know, <laughs> very frustrated that they don't have one. As someone who goes, uh, who's gone to the south, the southern hemisphere twice, of course, the first thing you want to see is this, is the Southern Cross, right? I mean, that's what I, because I never get to see it. that and the LMC and the uh, the large and small Magellanic clouds. I wanted to see those. So, because we just don't ever get a chance to see them from up here. So it makes sense that they would want to do, they would want to see the North yeah. Star. So I have a question. I don't know, this might, this might seem strange, but I'll, I'll let you know where I'm going with it in a minute. What's so great about this? Why are we talking about outreach? Do you think this is an important activity for amateur astronomers to do? And why? Why do we do outreach? Why do we go through the trouble? I've I've devoted my life to it right now. I'm doing it now. And, and, and Kevin, you are as well. So what's the big deal? Why are we doing this? I guess my, I had a lady ask me this question a couple of years ago, and it really hit me kind of hard because I had never really thought about it. Because it's like, it's such a basic thing. And it comes back to the, why am I standing in the middle of the desert looking up all night when I could be at home in my bed nice and comfortable? And it, it's there's nothing logical about it. But I guess for me, it's, I I want to share that there's a bigger picture. You know, we're, we're so busy with our lives and we're on our phones all the time. And I fall into that too. It's being able to stop for a second and just appreciate that we're not the center of the universe. It, what our, what's going on in our lives is fairly minuscule in the grand scheme of things. And I just feel like we have to stop and appreciate and see that we are a part of this bigger picture. Um, and that's why I like to do outreach a lot. And I like to share that with people as it comes back to that whole you know, appreciation of the major concept of we're a part of this much bigger thing. And it's all perspective. And showing people that perspective is what I'm after. That's a pretty that's a pretty good answer, Tony. How are you gonna follow that up? Well I I agree. I think that it is about perspective. I think that it's important. But the three of us, you know, we're the choir, right? I mean we know how great it is to look up and how amazing the universe is and all the stuff that we see over our heads is we we have an innate appreciation for it. And I guess for me, I'm concerned that there are people out there who um, are not 
I don't care if they're appreciative of it as much as I am, but I do want them to at least know that this is going on, that this stuff is out there. And I, so I feel like as amateur astronomers, it's not a duty. You don't have to do this, but I think we can't sort of help ourselves when we're, when we're looking through a telescope or when we're even talking about our hobby that we, that we want to share it with other people. And I think it's important because I worry about a lot of things with our science education levels and things like that, not just in this country, but across the world. And so I feel to the extent that we can share what we know, we should. And I, with that in mind, I want to just segue into a question that any amateur astronomers that might be listening might be thinking, well, I could do some stuff. I, I, you know, I have a telescope. I know a few things. What, would you, what advice would you give to somebody who said who who would come to you and say I'd like to do some outreach? What do you do that works, and what can I do? What advice would you give? You should do it. Um, I would probably say start off small um, if you're going to be doing something like that. You don't want to get overwhelmed. You bring your telescope out and 400 people show up. I've been there before, and you're beating them off with a bat and stuff like that. But um, now in all honesty, it's just you know maybe take it you know talk to a movie theater near your house or something and be like hey there's a moon up this night would it be okay if i set up in front of a movie theater or uh, a park or like what we're doing you know is there some kind of uh, art walk or um some kind of get together for the community or something and take your telescope out there and share with you and i know a lot of people will you know freak out because that you know a lot of the stuff might be expensive and they don't want anything to happen. And I find that as long as you're upfront with people about how to be safe around the telescope, it's no different than, you know, telling them that there's steps right here and don't trip over, you know, the steps on the stairs or something like that. You, you should bring yourself a step ladder so they don't grab the scope, but just, just tell them, it's like, Hey, if you want to look, here are just some, uh, safety tips on how to be safe about it. But in, in the end of the, the game there, you're just trying to en- encourage them to get the best, most comfortable view while they're using it. So uh, be upfront about it. Try to pick somewhere where people are going to be and just be uh, welcoming to people and clear with them about it. And that's how I started. And then it kind of snowballs from there because a teacher will see and be like, hey, do you do schools or you know, hey, we really we saw you here. Can you come do this event or whatever that might be? But be prepared also that it might snowball on you and get big. And, and you'll start to actually meet other people who think it's really interesting and they might come out with their telescope or they might want to be a part of it and come volunteer or help. And that's where kind of your your crew will start to come together as well. So but don't be afraid to go out there and start small you don't need a big telescope to do it at all. You could do it with a pair of binoculars or a small tabletop daub or a little refractor. You don't need twenty thousand dollars in telescope stuff to do it. People just want to look through them, look at the moon. Just start small and grow it to where you want to go. Dustin, do you have any advice on that? Um, yeah, I think that starting small is definitely the best advice. A lot of people, um, you know, if you come out and you see. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin, your your twenty it's a twenty eight inch you said right your twenty eight inch daub and you look through that it's it's going to be tempting to go home and start researching you know 
28 inch daubs. <laughs> That's probably a bad idea. I think that starting with anything really is, is kind of the key and just jumping in. And, uh, I mean, more than anything, Tony, you've said this yeah. a million times, man, but just going outside and looking up is a starting place. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, having binoculars or even, even without that, if you just say, go outside and look up, I mean, there's a philosophy to it, if nothing else. And you're looking at just the moon. If you think about just the moon, when you go out outside, this stuff is so much older than humanity that you literally do not have an ancestor that hasn't looked at exactly that same moon in their lifetime. There's not a single thing you've ever read in all of human history or anyone you've ever heard about. There's Shakespeare or any king or anyone that you've ever heard about has looked at exactly that same floating rock. And so when you start to kind of put those things together, it can be really exciting and a completely different experience just going outside and looking up with nothing at all. So getting started, it definitely starts that fever. And I think that that's, that's the most important thing is getting outside and getting started with whatever you have or, um, or nothing at all. Yeah. And implied in both of that is just keep it simple. Uh, just, you know, I, do you guys remember these uh, San Francisco sidewalk astronomers? They, yeah. They're probably still around. So I don't they, Yeah, they're just, still up there. Yeah. Uh, and John, I saw a documentary on John Dobson, uh, who was a part of that. And he would, you know, with his Dobsonian telescope design, kept it simple. You One look at it, you knew how to use it. There was no complicated knobs or, or, or drives or anything like that. And he would, he made solar filters out of solar glass and, and showed people the sun, uh, just set up wherever he was and talked about it. Uh, I think that goes a long way. Uh, he certainly reached more people than I think any of us could ever dream. And the, another uh, favorite story I have is a guy in Baltimore had a 25 year old C8, uh, Celestron 8 telescope. And he, he would, go into downtown Baltimore into Fells Point, which is a uh, sort of an upscale area right there next to the Inner Harbor where lots of bars are. And every clear night for like 25 years, he would go out and just set up and he would put a sign up and says, tonight, the moon or tonight, the Jupiter, whatever it was he wanted. He'd pick something. He'd stay out there a couple hours and people would be bar hopping and just, you know, just look through it and and uh, he actually put a little hat down and, and you want to put a you know some money in there for him uh, to do that. But he did that for 25 years and he finally stopped doing it. And the paper ran a story on him and everybody got really sad that he wasn't there anymore. And so even these small gestures like this that are simple really go a long way and change people's lives. And we can become disconnected. This is why I think it's important. We become disconnected because of light pollution, because of our daily lives, because of social media, the internet, all of that stuff. We become disconnected in a lot of ways to our surroundings, to nature, and most especially to the night sky, because it is easy to get cut off from that. Because when in many cities, you look up and you might see, you know, the three stars in the belt of Orion, you might see Betelgeuse, but you know, the other stars are all lost to you. The Milky Way is forever lost to you. So it's easy, I think, to, and it's not, it's easy to get disconnected. So it's important to remind people that it's there. That's why the subject of outreach, I feel like, is a very important one. Yeah. And it, it kind of, what I find interesting about astronomy um, is that, you know, you, you go on social media and the, 
the world is very polarized at the moment, unfortunately. But the interesting thing about astronomy is I could take five people with completely different views on the world, many probably that don't even agree with each other, and you could stick them out under a night sky where everything is now, all the variables melt away, and we can bring up astronomy, and in 10 minutes, you could be having an incredibly deep conversation with people from very opposite walks of life. And all of that just fades away at that point. And it's really kind of interesting how people start to become the different type of person that people become when you start, you know, bringing stuff like this up. Because again, they start, I think they start envisioning the bigger picture where a lot of this stuff doesn't, it doesn't apply anymore. You can kind of leave your problems and leave your or whatever that may be at the door when the sun goes down and just come out and let your mind wander at that point. And another thing that you're doing that I really like is in, in discussing the connection that a person has between the photons of these distant stars and galaxies and nebulae and, you know, impacting your retina. Uh, you also use the meteorites. I think that's really cool. Where did you get those? Where do you get your meteorites from? So uh, going into meteorites, I would tell anybody that you have to be very, very careful about where you get them from because you want to make sure you're not going to get ripped off or anything like that. So, Oh, is that a problem? There's a lot of, a lot of scammers? Yeah, no, there's a lot of scammers out there. There's a lot of fake stuff out there. And it, it's really kind of unfortunate, but it's just how it is. So I work with several really reputable dealers in the, the meteorite world. And the meteorite world is very much like the telescope world. But the weird thing is, is they don't really interact that much. They're very, they kind of ride, they're like a pair of train tracks. You know, they ride right next to each other on kind of the topics, but they never really cross, which is bizarre to me. So uh, I work with companies like Aerolite Meteorites. I shouldn't say I work with them, but I've, I've I've acquired pieces through uh, Aerolite Meteorites. If you ever remember the the Science Channel show uh, Meteorite Men, yeah, uh, is that still on? Jeff, or is that it's not unfortunately, but Jeff Notkin, who's on there, his business is Aerolite Meteorites, so he still hunts them. Um, so you can go there and you can buy them um, online. They're in Tucson, uh, and then KD Meteorites, uh, they're out. I believe they're in Kansas. Um, they're another well-known meteorite dealer, and I buy a lot of my pieces through them, and. Those are where I've basically acquired, and I've worked with some others as well, um, but you want to make sure you know. I usually find out from, those are my main two, and from there I've branched off and found other people depending on the piece that I'm looking for, uh, but those are those are the best places to start if you're looking to get started. Are they expensive? How much, how much do they cost? They can be. Um, you can get yourself like a, a decent little chunk of meteorite for depending on the type. Uh, meteorites have very many variables that uh, change the price. I want one with life on it. With life on it. Um, <laughs> so uh, you could get your decent, basic little iron meteorite, like a Campo del Cielo, uh, for, which is very common, or Gibeon, for 50, 60 bucks would be a small piece. Um, larger pieces are getting into the hundreds. I have some pieces in the cases that are worth $2,000 a piece. Um, that's wow. why they're in locked cases at that point. <laughs> but uh, I basically wanted to make it a mobile museum. And I have pieces that you can pick up and touch, but I have some really rare pieces that are in the cases. Uh, one, for example, to kind of to go back on your whole life comment is uh, a meteorite called Murchison, which fell to Earth in 1969 in Australia. 
and uh, Murchison meteorite is the most studied meteorite on the face of the Earth uh, because it contains 70 amino acids in it, um, which brings up kind of an interesting conversation at that point because you basically have the building blocks of life at that point on there. So yeah, uh, that's called a carbonaceous chondrite meteorite. That's uh, kind of a rare stone meteorite. So I have I tried to make sure that the pieces that are in the cases are going to be ones that are interesting to people or like the one that fell to Russia in 2013, Chelyabinsk, of a piece of, Chelyabinsk, yeah, yeah. Of, a piece of that one in the case, because I want to make it things that either look cool or are relevant or something that people can relate to because astronomy is already hard enough to do that. So if you can have pieces that's like, wow, this one looks really neat. Why does it look like that? Or wow, this one, I remember that when it's all over YouTube or whatever. Meteorites are a great way and a great companion to have with a telescope because where a telescope, you can see things, the meteorite kind of brings it down to where you can touch it. Um, and that's the one thing, of course, we all know that a telescope, unfortunately, cannot supply. So you don't need to drag around two cases and 50 samples like I do, I, I, I started with a little chunk of iron meteorite that I have in my pocket, and that, that's where it all started at that point. My big takeaway from Chelyabinsk was that it was impressive, but I just could not believe how many people in Russia had dashboard cams. That was my big takeaway. <laughs> Whoa, everybody recorded this. Yeah. How many people have dashboard yeah. cams? Well, turns out everybody. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that was pretty cool. Well, okay, let's close out this conversation a little bit with the, the topic. I would like to know from you guys how important you think astronomy clubs are in outreach. Do you guys visit astronomy clubs very much? Are you a part of one? Do you think uh, they're important when it comes to outreach? I'll let you start, Kevin. So hopefully I don't irritate anybody with this, but um, astronomy clubs, I feel, are kind of a difficult thing to work with um, at times. Not all clubs are run the same. And one of the problems I have with some clubs is that I feel like a lot of them have good intentions, but unfortunately the inner politics of the group shuts down the productivity that they could be doing. And I've had some clubs even go to the point of blaming the telescope industry of saying, oh, it, it should be you guys. And it's like, well, no, it's the club's job to be doing the, the grassroots efforts. And I guess the one, there are some clubs that really have their act together and they're awesome. But I've seen uh, probably a far more amount of clubs that they they don't want to put the effort into it. And maybe that's not their thing, and that's fine. Um, but I have seen some clubs where they say it's their thing, and I feel like they fall short on it because of whatever their internal struggle at that club might be. So hopefully I don't irritate anybody with that comment. But, you know, it's that's that's what I've seen. I've done this long enough to where I've seen a lot of clubs where I feel like they just straight up drop the ball when it comes to outreach. So, but not all clubs, just some. I, I spend a lot of time with clubs, a ton of time talking to different clubs around the country and, and world. And I don't think you'll irritate anybody because I think people in a lot of clubs, even the people in good clubs know that sometimes bad clubs exist. I mean, it's not, it's not that they don't, right? I mean, and I wouldn't even say it's bad clubs, but it doesn't take many people with an attitude like that to really kind of shut down mm -hmm. the productivity of the club. 
And so I've seen it. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it is frustrating because you in those clubs where you've got a couple people causing issues, you have everyone else that wants to do exactly what you're talking about. But as you said, you know, sometimes the inner politics can become a problem and um, it can shut down the productivity of the club. On the other side of that, I mean, I am a member of a club, actually a couple clubs, and uh, I try to support them because I like the idea. I like what clubs are doing. I think it's very important. And I think it gives people like it gave myself. uh, I didn't know anything about astronomy coming in. And it gave me a place to go to ask questions to people that wanted to hear those questions and that wanted to help me learn about astronomy and appreciate astronomy. And it gave me just honestly, uh, a place where people wanted to talk about it. And I think that's extremely important. So, I mean, I think the clubs do it a hell of a lot better than the forums do. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah. You mean the online yeah. forums? Yeah, the online forums. I mean, it's like a war zone and a lot of bad information there. So um, I think the clubs do a good job. And I know the club I'm a part of here, um, you know, they're constantly thinking of how do we share this with more people? And uh, we do a ton of work with them. We do a ton of work with the clubs here in, in Southern California. So I know those well. But um yeah, I think it's uh, all in all, I would say it's a very important thing. And, um, you know, we're we're definitely happy to support them in that. I just uh, would say the people that are going into it know that, you know, that should be the goal. And clubs themselves should probably, like, think about that. Like, that should be the goal is this is fun for people. This should be fun for people. This should never be about – nobody should even know the inner workings of the club. It should all be about outreach and just helping people enjoy the night sky. Yeah, definitely, and, and I agree with a lot of what Dustin said, actually, and he iterated it probably uh, better than I did, where you know, every, every group or every relationship is going to have its complexities. And, of course, um, you know, obviously when you're married, you've got your – your spouse there, but uh, but then when you get like into these larger groups, you've got five or six people who are kind of the major hub of that. So you've got five or six individual relationships that have to kind of work. It's kind of like a Rubik's cube where you have to get them all lined up together, and it can be difficult because you have people who have different viewpoints and opinions and stuff. Uh, but clubs definitely, and I don't I didn't want to downplay a club either because there's a lot of places. Uh, especially around the country here where that's the only place you can go if you're you're interested in astronomy there's there's not a telescope store around every corner anymore where you can go and hang out in a view in the front anymore or observatories that you can go to so the club is is very very important to represent astronomy in their region and i guess that's where i kind of get frustrated on some clubs because i know that that a lot of times is the only doorway for a lot of people. And I feel like they should always, I feel like some clubs should kind of step it up to be, to tell more people that they do exist. Um, Cause astronomy, no pun intended, is kind of an underground um, hobby. It's not a forefront hobby. So you should always be there and be like, Hey, we are here. And if you, if you do have this interest, this is where you should go. Um, and that's my big thing with clubs is they're great. Um, asset to have and I feel like some of them just you know they should work a little bit better to to tell people that they are here and maybe be more welcoming at times and sharing that information with people 
All right. Well, cool. All right. If you are listening to this and you're an amateur astronomer and you are looking for ways to reach out to the people around you to share your hobby and your enthusiasm for what's up in the night sky, I hope this podcast has helped you a little bit. If you do not have a club near you, then why don't you start one? Uh, And maybe, you know, taking the advice of Kevin and Dustin, and my advice would be to be as inclusive as possible and share, just get together once a month or once every two weeks or whenever you feel like it, advertise it in your area and start just, just talking astronomy. And maybe then, and if you already have an astronomy club, maybe encourage them to have some events and some outreach uh, events in the community to go out and maybe just set some telescopes up and start showing people things because people will appreciate it. And in fact, it is so popular. It is such a natural thing to talk about. It breaks barriers. We've talked about that in the podcast. You meet people you ordinarily would probably never talk to, especially not online. So it's a good way to, to get out there and, and naturally discuss these things that people already want to hear about. In fact, it could even become so popular that I would say it's a good business idea. You could even turn it into a business. I did. Kevin did. Uh, and we, we, we're doing this as a job. So it is something to think about. Um, it Astronomy is everyone is naturally interested. So um, I want to thank our guest today. It was Kevin, Kevin Lagore from uh, Focus Astronomy. How can people reach you? Do you have a way of like a website or a way social media platforms people can follow you on? Yep. So the website is uh, www.focusastro.org. Um, and up there, it's got our links. Uh, but you can also find us on Instagram, just Focus Astronomy. Look for the little black and white Saturn logo. Uh, so Instagram, uh, Facebook, uh, we do have some YouTube content up there, uh, but those are our three major uh, outlets at that point. And if you find yourself in the Phoenix area, you can go on our website, see where we're going to be, and please come join us. There you go. All right. Thank you, Kevin. And on behalf of Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.